You're listening to a podcast from IP. Hello and welcome to another podcast from Injury Prevention. I'm Brian Johnston, the journal's editor-in-chief. Our podcast focuses on work that we've published in Injury Prevention, which is an international peer-reviewed journal. And if you're a regular listener, you'll know that in each issue, we identify a paper as the editor's choice. That paper becomes the topic of our podcast. Because our editor's choice is always free online, you can visit us at injuryprevention.bmj.com to download a copy for yourself. You can also leave us comments online and link to our searchable archive and to our blog. Today we're talking about the paper, Barriers to Senior Center Implementation of Falls Prevention Programs. This work appears in our August 2012 issue. To talk about the paper, I'm joined today by the lead author, Sierra Zachary, who's a postdoctoral researcher at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health in their Department of Health, Behavior, and Society. Hello, Sierra. Hi. Let's launch right in. Your your paper deals with falls in the elderly, which we know are a huge problem with all the associated morbidity, the disability costs, and mortality. And as in many areas of injury prevention, we already have a pretty good idea about what might work to reduce that burden. Your study looks at barriers to the implementation of these evidence-based interventions. Maybe you could start by telling us what motivated your research and the context in which you conducted it. Yes, yeah, so, um, you know, there were many factors that we considered when thinking about our research in this study. In addition to this, you know, the points that you made about, you know, falls contributing to the morbidity and mortality of older adults and the cost, um, we just really recognized that there was a dearth of knowledge regarding the conditions, um, the organizational level and program-specific barriers that could impede the adoption and implementation of, you know, multi-component falls prevention programs. So, you know, there is research out there just saying that, you know, falls prevention programs have been targeted towards senior centers, but just knowing the prevalence and the types of these programs and centers is really unknown on a national scale in the U.S. Um, a lot of, you know, research with senior centers is really just focusing on older adults and thinking about maybe barriers that they have to getting to the senior centers, but not so much just thinking about program delivery and, you know, how senior center staff can really implement or adopt these programs. Um, we were able to find a few studies that, you know, looked at maybe delivery of false prevention programs, but they, you know, use smaller convenient samples. And another factor that really influenced the study was just um, the fact that this study is a part of a larger project. So the data that we collected um, from this phase really helped to inform um, the next phase of a larger study, which really thought to think of methods to disseminate a packaged false prevention program. So we understood that in order to really disseminate this, um, this program effectively, we had to think about possible barriers that senior center staff and the actual facilities may have. So that your study sample was actually senior centers in the U.S. Can you describe mm -hmm. uh, that sample to us and how you found or identified those centers? Yeah, so our final sample was about um, 500 senior centers, but I think we had to be a little creative in getting that final sample. So unfortunately, you know, there isn't a complete inventory of senior centers in the United States. So we had to query a electronic telephone directory um, provided to us by InfoUSA. And so with that, we just, you know, cre created a few search terms, um, for example, using, you know, the word senior and community and programs and abbreviations of these terms. And once we finished that query, we had a little over 5,000 um, eligible senior centers. 
And with that, we decided to stratify those centers based on urbanicity. And to, you know, and to get that, we had to think about if over half of the population of people ages 60 and up kind of lived in either urban or rural areas, or, you know, in the zip code surrounding that senior center. Um, and with that population data, we got that from the census 2000. Um, and so once we, you know, created our four strata, you know, based on urban or, you know, rural um, areas, um, we were able to um, randomly sample, depending on the proportion of the size of each um, stratum and within each urban and um, rural stratum. And we, you know, contacted, I think, about 1,200 centers to get to our 500. But to get to your point of, you know, just describing our sample, um, most of our centers were located in um, urban areas, about 60%. Um, only about a quarter um, knew that they were accredited by the National Institute of Senior Centers, which is a, just a network of researchers and professionals associated with the Na National Council on Aging. And um, we also found out that about 70% um, of our centers were affiliated with government agencies, and if they and these could have been local or county or state level government agencies. And most other centers were um, associated with a nonprofit organization. Um, and as in regarding the older adult clientele, um, the average age was about 75 years, most for and most were female. Um, that just gives you a little snapshot of, you know, our sample. Yeah, well, you know, as you know, I'm a pediatrician, and I'm not quite of the age to seek services at a senior center myself. <laughs> so uh, I wonder w what proportion of at-risk elders, at least in the U.S., uh, actually get services from senior centers. Do you have any idea? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question. Um, unfortunately, like, I don't have any exact statistics on, you know, how many high-risk um, older adults really use senior centers to get, you know, health promotion or health services. Um, but we do know that a lot of these, you know, older adults who are living independently, about like 30 to 60 percent of them do experience falls um, each year. So that kind of just shows, again, that there is a need for, you know, imparting this knowledge about ways to make their home safer um, and to help, you know, lower their risk for falls. And mm -hmm. again, this highlights another need of finding venues like senior centers that can, you know, implement these programs. So uh, when you launched into this study, you started with some hypotheses about the barriers you would identify. Can you tell us what those were and where, where they came from? Yeah, so um, when we were thinking about our interview form and our hypotheses, you know, at first we wanted to consult the literature, but as stated earlier, um, we just didn't see a lot of information about barriers. So that kind of led us to thinking that we should really look to health promotion theories. And there were two theories in particular that we really um, consulted, um, the first being the theory of organizational change. Um, and with that, there were three organizational level um, barriers that we thought would, you know, we would really want to investigate. Um, the first just being, you know, resources that the senior center may have. And this could be anything from staffing, having enough staff, or having knowledgeable staff that would be able to deliver a program, um, to also just maybe resources of the senior center, like do they even have space to hold maybe a balanced exercise program. Um, a second barrier was just thinking about the perceived need, like how does fall prevention program compare or rank compared to other health promotion services that the center has. Um, and then other things to think about, um, a third um, barrier is like management commitment, like do senior level staff at the senior centers or other administrators really support and help maybe other staff members look for resources to help um, 
implement or adopt these programs. So the second um, theory that we also looked at was Roger's um, theory of the fusion of innovations, and this really helped us identify like program-specific barriers. And what we were looking at is really, you know, are the various components, the three components that we were interested in that comprise a comprehensive fault prevention program, were they accessible and available to senior centers or even available in the communities? And the first is just thinking about balanced exercises, um, class classes, like does the senior center already offer this or is it available in the community? Um, also thinking are there health educators or pharmacists that can come and talk about medication management? And then three, are there even home improvement stores in the, you know, the neighborhood that maybe, you know, want seniors learn about um, these fault prevention and like how to reduce risk or hazards in their home? Can they go somewhere to maybe install maybe like grab bars in their showers or an extra rail on their staircase? So those were things that, you know, program-specific and organizational-level barriers that we were really interested in. And then we also thought about that, you know, how could these barriers be modified by other factors, such as, you know, a senior center's organizational structure, like thinking about the daily attendance or the educational level of the person who's responsible for delivering um, programs, and thinking about other resources that the senior center may have, depending on its location and whether it you know, had any partnerships with organizations in the community, and then finally just thinking about whether the demographics of the older adult um, clientele really maybe could affect um, or influence the adoption and implementation of a false prevention program. So you looked at both programmatic and, and organizational level um, potential mm-hmm. barriers. Maybe just uh, describe for us what you learned. What were the major barriers? What was the total proportion of senior centers that actually offered multi-component uh, false prevention interventions? And was there variation in the barriers according to important characteristics of the center? So I think we got a lot of great, you know, information. And I think um, one thing that was a little surprising to me or what I found really interesting was that um, a lot of senior centers do maybe offer, maybe even if they didn't offer all three components because that was only about a third of the senior centers, even if they just maybe offered one component of what could comprise a, you know, multifaceted false prevention program, they didn't label this or advertise maybe like a Tai Chi class as being something that can improve your balance and maybe reduce the risk of falls. So it seems that maybe these activities are already, you know, available in the senior centers, but they just don't know how to maybe um, let the older adult clientele know that this is something that could benefit and, you know, it maybe increase their quality of life. So that was like one thing that, you know, I found pretty um, interesting. And another is just that, you know, we kind of thought that senior centers would rely a lot on community partnerships. And this seemed to be true. Um, A lot of them did know maybe that there were pharmacists that could come in and talk about, you know, medication management and how different, you know, different drugs maybe interact. But I think what was a little surprising is that um, the one component that seemed to be the least prevalent, which was the home safety education in the senior centers, a lot of the senior centers didn't know about or how to access maybe resources in the community. Like, and only about 30% of the participating senior centers really reported that they knew where to maybe get information about home safety or home hazard um, education. In regards to the barriers, um, what we learned was that the organizational level barriers, such as um, the staff having enough staff, staff time to really, you know, implement a program, and also staff knowledge um, were the main concerns that the senior um, center staff really had about adopting and implementing a false prevention um, program. 
And so it seemed that the person, like the senior center personnel, like understood that false prevention was important. It's just that they were really concerned about, you know, these barriers. Um, as for differences across um, the nation or, you know, depending on urbanicity, uh, we did see some differences between urban and rural senior centers. Um, for the most part, it seemed that senior centers located in um, urban areas were more likely to offer this comprehensive false prevention program. And um, I think this is consistent with the literature and stating that maybe senior centers in urban areas just had more access to human and financial resources. And then, you know, what we found interesting was that a lot of senior centers that seem to partner with religious organizations seem to offer more components um, of a comprehensive false prevention program. And when we're thinking, of, again, about another organizational level barrier, um, again, like having full-time or paid staff or higher educated staff, again, seems to increase the likelihood of also offering a multifaceted um, false prevention program. So you've already you've already hinted that uh, this is part of a, a larger undertaking, but what do you think we should do with your findings? Um, what should the injury prevention community take on to help address the barriers that you've identified? So, um, you know, I think the study, despite maybe, you know, some of its limitations, is just a really good first step in understanding the needs of senior centers. And I think there are a few things that we in the injury prevention community can do. Um, the first is maybe just really helping to identify methods to increase senior center awareness of the resources available in the community to, like, help supplement um, program components. So, again, like, I think, you know, senior center directors and other staff recognize that false prevention is, you know, important, but now they just need support maybe from volunteers or contract employees or, you know, local college students who are maybe in physical therapy programs or in a pharmacy program to maybe, like, help, you know, give this information to the seniors. Um, to the seniors. Um, and I think we can also just really begin to study methods um, to disseminate, like, maybe packaged false prevention programs that could, you know, ease false prevention program adoption, and this effort can really be tied into, you know, existing resources that senior center staff may already have. You've already touched on this a little bit, but um, I want to ask it more explicitly. Um, we see plenty of examples in injury prevention of uh, very effective injury prevention interventions that are never scaled or disseminated, they're never fully implemented uh, because uh, they've not been really tested in the populations, the real-world populations for whom they're most applicable. And I wonder if, if when we are planning our efficacy research, when we're asking the question, does this intervention work, should we be doing a better job of incorporating knowledge about potential barriers into our research design? Should we be testing interventions that are more likely to be implemented? Um, yeah, I, I do um, believe that we should look at barriers. Um, both for, you know, what are barriers or perceived barriers that the individuals who are going to deliver these programs, what would they face and what would make it harder for them to maybe adopt um, these, you know, these programs into maybe, you know, senior centers or other places that could deliver false prevention information or any other intervention um, information. But also we need to also start thinking about, you know, barriers that the populations that we want to impart this knowledge to, what do they have and maybe adopting these health behaviors. So, you know, in order to really, you know, influence population health or those in high-risk um, communities, we really need to understand how to disseminate programs for successful translation into high-risk communities in addition to maybe understanding what are maybe certain constructs um, that could really, 
make an intervention work, quote unquote. So um, let me shift tracks just a little bit here and, and talk as an editor. Yours is one of an increasing number of papers that we publish where the authors have agreed to make the data set available to other interested parties. Clearly, as an editor and as a peer reviewer, I think it's an excellent idea. But I'm wondering, from an author's perspective, what motivates you to pursue data sharing? The authors and I, like, we agree with you that it's a good idea to share um, our data. And I think by sharing our data, we were just hoping that it could motivate other researchers in injury prevention um, community to maybe contribute to this particular body of knowledge, especially since there's um, so little information about barriers and maybe the prevalence and the types and even the, the quality of fault prevention programs that are offered in senior centers. So what we were hoping is this, and knowing that we don't know much about barriers, maybe people could take a look at our data and maybe think of maybe what's missing or how other ways to measure, you know, these organizational level and um, program-specific barriers and maybe just really contribute to this so that when we think about disseminating and scaling up these programs to, you know, places um, other senior centers that it can be um, a bit more effective. And finally, Sierra, tell us, are you doing any other injury-related work at this point? At this point, um, my research hasn't been um, injury-related. However, um, my co-author, Carrie Castile, um, she's currently working on um, an older adult false prevention study, um, which follows really nicely to this particular study in which, you know, the objectives of this study is really just to better understand the factors that may limit the potential impact of existing um, evidence-based false prevention programs and to really use this information to make strategic recommendations about the design and marketing of evidence-based um, programs in order to achieve greater use by um, older adults. So um, I think, you know, she's definitely picking up where this maybe this study could have like, kind of left off. Terrific. We'll look forward to that. That was Sierra Zachary discussing her paper in the August 2012 issue of Injury Prevention. The paper, Barriers to Senior Center Implementation of Falls Prevention Programs, is this month's editor's choice. It's freely available on the journal's website. And that'll do it for this edition of our podcast. Please join us in October for highlights of the next issue. And check out our blog for ongoing discussion. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.